Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 67, Sedimentary Silesia. Thank you for listening. Well, isn't that cute? A title that draws people in. Like what? Silesia is sedimentary now? I thought it was basalt. It is. It's a large igneous province. We've talked about it many times previously. But when I was teaching Geology 351 this spring, and I've just finished the course and reported my final grades yesterday, and the general plan is to kind of look back and get you caught up in this audio podcast series on the new stuff that I was able to learn. Very exciting to learn that new stuff and to implement it in the classroom pretty much in real time and get student feedback, student ideas, and then, you know, they're all recorded uh, in that uh, live form, live stream form, on uh, in video form on uh, my YouTube channel. Um, you know, that that is kind of the plan here, that, I, that I'm kind of going backwards now and, and thinking about stuff that I want to share with you. And so we are getting into some sedimentary deposits today that help mm, help um, fine-tune the accretion of Silesia. So it's one of those clickbait things, maybe. I don't know. I'm not that clever, but you, you know what I mean. Maybe. Uh, it's like, what? Uh, this person's dating this person? Whoa, I had no idea. And then you click on it. It's like, oh, my God, this is, sounds, sounds juicy. Oh, I, boy, this is like a May-December thing. I got, And then, it's, you know. They're not dating. They just got you to click on the thing, man. Gotcha. All right. Basically, I didn't know what to call this episode. I'm still not sure I like the title, but uh, uh, I, I was drawn in to some sedimentary rock units in western Washington and in central Washington that, that uh, play a role in... Uh, in helping us fine-tune some things with Silesia. So that's where we're headed today. One quick preamble. The last episode um, talked about me being out in Grand Coulee with Brian Atwater, kind of a fanboy episode. And uh, I did post that video. Uh, it's more than an hour long. I just couldn't, I could not remove some of that stuff. Uh, in other words, I, I, I couldn't take some of that out and, and leave it on the cutting room floor, as it were. Um, so if you if you were intrigued by last audio episode and you, you want to be out there with us, uh, I was pleased with the video and seems like there's a lot of reaction in the last 48 hours. So go to my YouTube channel if you have time and and watch uh, more than an hour of Brian Atwater digging into a bunch of varves and and uh, other interesting units uh, right in the shadow of Steamboat Rock in Upper Grand Coulee. So thanks for many of you reaching out and uh, making comments about that last audio episode. Okay, well, onward to some new stuff here then um, with this series. And... Um, 
So we're talking about, okay, how do I want to do this? I taught 351 all spring. There were two new lectures every week. And we started in late March. And most of the month of April was just kind of trying to find what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to ultimately end up in central Washington and discuss some potential similarities between the gold in Liberty and the gold in Wenatchee. Well, I never totally got there. Then, in other words, this course goes until second week of June, and I'm recording this now June 16th, so just kind of looking back. Uh, And so I didn't totally get to what I was thinking I wanted to do with the course and connect maybe some thoughts of involving the Tianaway volcanics in central Washington with some of the igneous rocks that are not that far away in Wenatchee. But I don't feel bad about it because I got pretty damn interested in the sedimentary units that have been studied most recently by Michael Eddy and Aaron Donaghy. And forgive me, I can't remember how much I've talked about those two guys. I know I've talked about Eddie, but I'm not sure I've talked about Aaron at all yet uh, in this audio form. So let me try quickly right now and give you a sense of her, because uh, she'll come up again in the next couple of audio episodes here. So Michael Eddie's the guy that I've talked about before, I'm sure, because I'm associated with his research group in the North Cascades, and that was really the motivation to get into all the exotic terrain stuff to begin with. And I am scheduled to camp with Mike Eddy and Stacia Gordon and Bob Miller uh, about a month from now in late July up in the North Cascades, and I'll be recording a lot of my uh, discussions with them. And and Michael Eddy is at Purdue University and has built a... uh, geochronology lab there at Purdue, and and it sounds like things are going well. His first PhD student that he's supervising at Purdue is Aaron Donaghy, E-R-I-N, Donaghy, and she did her master's thesis with Paul Umhofer at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, and her topic was the Chumstick Formation in Central Washington. So Umhofer's been up here in the in Washington for many many decades, and Aaron just did a, an amazing master's thesis, and then kind of fell into some of these regional stories involving the Pacific Northwest and Eocene tectonics, and. Uh, and now she's studying under Mike. Uh, I think she just finished her second year. She's very active on social media, so it's always a thrill to kind of see her Instagram stories. And she's you know, crushing rocks, and she's getting zircons from some of these sedimentary units here in Washington. And it's especially exciting because um, I, I now know what to do with these sedimentary units. I, I understand their significance and what new clues can be pulled out. So let's get to it then. 
Um, there's there's two sedimentary units in Washington that help us visualize the docking of Silesia, the accretion of Silesia. So two episodes ago, I had to re-listen. I took a walk last night. I had to re-listen to that. I forget what it's even called. but um, You know, like, where did I leave off before I got on that Atwater tangent? Where, where did I leave off with my kind of updating you all on some new stuff I've been learning? And I, I, what did I call that? I can't remember. Oh, long-lived Yellowstone hotspot. Right, so I got into the... Uh, so last, previously, uh, with our discussions, I was talking about Silesia, what we know about Silesia. Uh, it's out in the water. Uh, Ray Wells, Vic Camp, uh, Mantle Plume. Uh, just very quickly, um, the basalts of Silesia run in age from 56 to 48 million years ago. Uh, and the accretion of Silesia, that's different, right? That's the adding, is uh, pretty carefully tied between 51 and 49 million years ago. So we're, we're talking pretty much about the 51 to 49. Like, how do we know that? Like, there's no... Um, how, do you, how do you... Now, this was a question on the final exam, actually, too. What evidence do we have to pinpoint the accretion of Silesia. Like, how do you do that? It's one thing to make a terrain, and then we are talking about an exotic terrain, Silesia, the most recent, I guess the last exotic terrain to add to the Pacific Northwest. Um, but but how, do you, how do you document when the thing gets tacked on to the leading edge of a southward drifting North American plate? Well, that's where these sedimentary rocks come in. It's pretty cool. So the so the swak formation in central Washington is one way to do it. Swak formation exposed north of Ellensburg in central Washington. This place called Blewett Pass, U.S. ninety-seven. This whole spring, we've been doing field trips with the 351 students pretty much on the north side of Blewett Pass, dropping down into the Wenatchee River Valley. Again, I'll be talking more about this in upcoming episodes from this series, but my God, I've been on US 97 over Blewett Pass uh, once or twice a week this whole spring. It's been great. And uh, been you know as I continue to read and continue to discuss with uh, certain authors, uh, those areas, um, especially north of Blewett Pass, uh, have really kind of um, snapped into focus for me, and maybe for you too if you know the area. So the Swak Formation, which is exposed all along Old Blewett Pass Road, New Blewett Pass Road. Uh, plenty of other places in central Washington as well where the Swak formation is, is, is on display. 
the swak runs from 59 to 59 to 49 million years ago. Swak formation, 59 to 49 million years ago. It's mostly in our Kosick sandstone unit. And there's some interbedded black shales as well. And there's some conglomerates also. Okay? I have talked about the Swak formation previously. I forget when. It's been a while. But there's all sorts of beautiful plant fossils that you can pull out of the Swak formation. And by the way, in western Washington, up by Bellingham, that's northwestern Washington, is the Chuckanut Formation. That's the same stuff. The Swak Formation, the Chuckanut Formation, same exact Arcosic sandstones, shales, and conglomerates. They've simply been offset by the Straight Creek Fault, but not our topic today. So we have this vast sedimentary basin between 59 and 49 million years ago, you know, in Washington. This is pre-Cascades. And this is in the neighborhood of building Silesia out in the water. Now you can see where we're going, maybe. So in other words, we have a sedimentary basin with rivers bringing all sorts of sand to this kind of quiet depositional basin. I think everybody agrees it's kind of a quiet basin. But something in the Swak Formation, 59 to 49, is going to help us clearly see an arrival of a major exotic terrain, a big one, a large igneous province, half of which is up in Alaska today, but originally was all coming in and accreting. Okay, well... What do we see? We see a river, a river reversal. Oh man, that's the one of the big moments of the audio episode, and I'm, I'm tongue-tied right there. Bad timing. We see a river reversal. So let me try this with you. Can you picture a stratigraphic column of the Swak Formation? So it's a column, it's a vertical column. You know, you can just imagine a little sheet of graph paper and just a, a vertical, get some colored pencils out if you want, but we got the swak going from 59 at the bottom to 49 at the top. You got it? And again, there's sandstones and shales and occasional conglomerates thrown in there. Fine. If we go from bottom, 59, up towards the top, not quite to the top, though. 59 to 51. So in other words, a majority of the swak from 59 to 51, going from bottom to top. Careful work with detrital zircons in the swak sandstones and some occasional conglomerates are showing that rivers bringing sand to the lower swak are rivers coming from the east. Rivers bringing sand from the east, in other words, westward flowing rivers. It's always confusing on how to describe that, but let's just, let's do it that way. The rivers are flowing west and they're bringing sand to this swak 
swamp, which is essentially a sandbox that occasionally gets, you know, bogged down, literally. You get these swamps and kind of poorly drained areas, but there's also these rivers kind of bringing, uh, perpetual rivers bringing this sand in from the east, westward flowing rivers. Well, Michael Eddy, five years ago or more, I guess, started publishing on the SWAC, and he said, hey, man, we've got something good. At 51 million years ago, there's a sudden change in the SWAC formation sediments. There's a bunch of changes, and I, I guess I won't get into all of them, but, but the big change is by carefully analyzing sand grains and cobbles within the upper swak. So the upper swak for us is 51 to 49. You got your vertical colored pencil strat column? 59 to 51, that's the lower swak. Just at the upper, whatever that is, fifth of the thing, 51 to 49 is the upper swak. Well, the sands are coming in from the west. Instead of the lower swak having westward flowing rivers, the upper swak, 59 to 40, 51 to 49, has eastward flowing rivers. We, ch- we flipped the direction that the rivers are flowing. Kind of awkward, let me say it differently. There's sand throughout the Swak Formation, but in the upper, but in the last two million years of depositing that Swak sand, the sand is coming from the west of the basin as opposed to the east. That's a documentation of the arrival of Silesia, and you're like, I don't. What do you mean? Like you got, you got basalt grains then you got you got sand coming from Silesia itself no but you do have sand coming from a topographic high immediately west of the swak formation as opposed to a topographic high immediately east to the swak formation earlier on you're starting to see it now you're like that sounds kind of weak and you're down there on your hands and knees looking at sand grains in a, in a sedimentary unit in central Washington. You're saying something profound about tectonics of the entire Pacific Northwest about 50 million years ago. Yeah, I think you are. And again, it's Mike Eddy doing the work, among others. And I'm purposely leaving out a bunch of other lines of evidence to help confirm that this really is an accretion of Silesia's story. Because there's some folding, there's some feeder dikes developing, there's all sorts of other crazy things happening roughly 51 million years ago. But that's the point. The point is that there's many different ways to document the arrival of Silesia. And I'm choosing in this episode to focus on some Tiny details within a sedimentary unit. By the way, um, I think I almost have PTSD with sedimentary units. It's a little dramatic, but what I mean is uh, I, I discovered geology. I think I've shared this before. I, I, 
I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. That's that's my home state. And I showed up on campus in uh, the fall of 1980. And it was three years of just aimless wander. Madison was a big place for me. I was from a small farming town. Um, there was just so much to process and absorb, and I, I was immature, uh, kind of, you know, in many ways. And it took me a long time to find a, an area of interest. I was just taking classes, you know, I was too intimidated even to go and talk to an advisor, so I'm just like, you know, taking classes that sound interesting. I have no rhyme or reason to what I'm doing. And I eventually ran out of money, so I quit school, and I worked in Glacier National Park in Montana for a summer just pumping gas, and that's how I got into geology. My my workmates were geology students, and they pointed out a few things, and I got real interested living in uh, the mountains for the first time. So I went back to Madison and took Geology 101 in the fall of 1984, and I've been in geology ever since. My point is, when I finally kind of worked my way through, kind of fast-tracked through the geology program at the University of Wisconsin, 1984 through, you know, June of 1980 or May of 1986, uh, you know, all of our quote-unquote fieldwork was looking at sedimentary layers. And that shit's boring, man. Now, don't get me wrong, I had excellent instruction and those that know the University of Wisconsin geology program you know that it's a very strong program for sure but my god you're in some quarry in Dane County Wisconsin and you're going through these sedimentary units and you're making strat columns in the field and you got a grad student helping you and you're trying to find transgressive and regressive whatever and what was missing to me was any sort of regional story. I was just like, okay, so the there's shallow seas here, and then the, the sea level's falling, and so it's just I didn't understand why we were doing all that work, except just you know to learn how to do some basic geology. But or you're out with. And again, these are, these were very important people in my past. Robert Dot or uh, um, Cameron Craddock, Bob Gates, all of them gone now, I think. Uh, I learned from very well-respected geologists, but you know, Bob Dot takes us out on a field trip, and and we're you know shivering on a you know, road cut somewhere outside of Mineral Point, Wisconsin or something, and the, the, tra the traffic's heavy, you know, and you can barely hear the guy, and we're looking at a couple of sandstone layers. My, my point is, like, that was my introduction to field geology, just looking at a bunch of St. Peter sandstone in some, some cornfield, you know? Like I, I was not turned on. For sure. Well, here I am now, and I'm looking at sandstones with my students. 
but I can plug this information into a regional picture. And that, that's where all the excitement is for me. So sedimentary Silesia, ha ha, okay, yeah. So we have a record in the sedimentary units of the Swak Formation in central Washington to document the arrival of Silesia simply by looking at detrital zircons. In other words, zircon grains, sand grains, that have been eroded away from some bedrock and using some some kind of careful measurement and cross beds and other things within the Swak sedimentary series, we see that rivers suddenly stop bringing sand from the east and they start bringing some sand from the west. That's a pretty major change. Why would those rivers change direction? Because topographic highs have changed. Why would topographic highs change? Because of the arrival of this major large igneous province that creates a temporary topographic high to the west of the Swak sandbox. And, and uh, this is all before the, the Cascades begin, of course. But that uh, detrital zircon story works. Okay, well, that's not exactly new to me. I did a public lecture on that four, four years ago or five years ago or whatever, Michael Eddy. But the other part of this episode that I'd like to cover quickly, and that will transition, I think, that will help us transition into Aaron Donaghy's work, is that out in the Olympic Peninsula, where you can actually find Silesia lava, in Washington, known as the Crescent Formation, I know or the Crescent Basalt. I know I've talked about this now, so I'm going to go quickly. But I'm not going to go quickly on the Blue Mountain sandstone. So this is really where we start slowing down and getting pretty damn juicy in the next couple of episodes. It's my favorite part of the 351 class. And so the beginning of the... Uh, the, the key units that really reveal some new work and some new excitement. Um, we start with the Blue Mountain Sandstone. So if you've been to Hurricane Ridge up uh, above Port Angeles, Washington, you're in North Cascades National Park, and much of that drive up Hurricane Ridge Road is Silesia Basalt, much of it's subaqueous, meaning the Large igneous provinces erupting underwater. Hang on, I'm going to sneeze for a second. <coughs> Maybe not. False alarm. Oh, boy. <coughs> well, I'm sure I'll edit that out. No, I won't. Excuse me. Oh, we have a friend. Are you kidding me? Come on. Come on, did you want to come in? Bijou the cat making an appearance. Hey, man. We'll keep rolling unless uh, we have pause on the keyboard here. Um, the Blue Mountain unit is important. It's a sandstone. It's an Arcosic sandstone nearby. There actually is a Blue Mountain not far from Hurricane Ridge. I had to look on Google Maps to find it. So the mountain itself, Blue Mountain, is not that big a deal. Uh, but there is this Blue Mountain unit, this Arcosic sandstone. 
Now, things get interesting because, okay, choose my words carefully. It appears when you look at a cross-section of the Olympic Peninsula that the sandstones of the Blue Mountain unit are sitting underneath the Siletia basalt. And so for quite a few years over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, there was debate about the origin of Siletia. And there was a group saying, well, Siletia cannot be basalt that formed out in the ocean because it sits on top of the Blue Mountain sandstones and it looks like the Blue Mountain sandstones were deposited at the shore here. So any kind of discussion of a large igneous province and Siletia used to be out in the water and Yellowstone mantle plume and that whole thing we were talking about last time. There's a group that would just say, well, I just don't believe it because you have this arcosic sandstone down below. So you have to build Siletia on top of this Blue Mountain sandstone, and therefore you're building Siletia here in Washington. Well, Michael Eddy published a 2018 paper on the Blue Mountain unit. I don't think it's in the title, but you can find it, I suppose. Or you know how you can find it. If you go to nicksentner.com and you look in the upper right-hand corner, uh, click on 351, and you'll get to the Geology 351 course page, which has all the scientific papers that we have been using this quarter. I know I've mentioned this before. I'm reminding you. So look at that. Blue Mountain Unit paper 2018, I think you'll be excited by what you read if you have interest and if you have time. But let me, let me try to finish this episode by talking about how that sedimentary unit, the Blue Mountain Unit, helps us realize that Siletia clearly was formed out in the water, even though today it looks like it sits on top of this Blue Mountain unit. Well, what did Eddie do? He went to the Blue Mountain unit. He collected zircons. He figured out a maximum depositional age of the Blue Mountain unit. And guess what? The Blue Mountain unit is not older than Siletia. It's younger than Siletia, even though it's sitting beneath Siletia. Biggest point of today, right here at the end. Try it again. Did you hear what I said earlier? It appears to sit on top. It appears that the Siletia basalt on the Olympic Peninsula sits directly on top of the Blue Mountain sandstone, therefore implying that this Blue Mountain sandstone must be older than Siletia. If it sits below, like that's, you know, basic Steno's laws and superposition, the whole thing. Stuff older, uh, the layer at the bottom has got to be the oldest. Well, that doesn't work if you have a major fault, and that's the main point. There's a major fault between the Blue Mountain unit and the overlying Siletia basalt. And we know that fault has to be there because of the ages. 
What's the age of Celestia Basalt? 59 to 40. Mm. What's the age of the Celestia Basalt? 56 to 48. What's the age of the underlying Blue Mountain unit? Which is our Arcosic Sandstone interpreted as a series of turbidity currents? Like, this is a sandstone not in a freshwater swamp like we had just a second ago in central Washington. The Blue Mountain unit Arcosic Sands are talking about evidence of uh, sands being dumped down a continental slope. This is basically marine sand as opposed to freshwater sand. But the point is, with the work of Mike Eddy in 2018 and others, Ken Clark and Michael Polins, I think, as well, the age of the Blue Mountain sand is between 47 and 44 million years ago. 47 to 44. That's younger than Celestia basalt. So how do you get young sand underneath an older large igneous province? The answer is that you take turbidite sand after Celestia has been accreted and you start cramming that turbidite sand of the Blue Mountain unit underneath an already accreted Celestia. It's a crucial point. The geometry, the structural geology, and just the layout of these units on the Olympic Peninsula helps us see that, again, we can pinpoint the timing of accretion of Celestia not using Celestia basalt, but by using sedimentary units. This time, young sand, younger than Celestia sand, that's being crammed underneath Celestia after it got accreted. And that involves a whole tacoing of the whole system, which is very almost impossible to explain, probably in audio form. But if you go to that paper, I think you'll see the, 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 the main message. So at the 35-minute mark here, let me try to summarize what I've tried to do today. To pick up where we left last time when discussing Celestia, the the fine-tuning of the adding of Celestia to North America is not from studying careful detail in Celestia, but it's looking at two sedimentary units that are peripheral to where Celestia is today. One, a non-marine sandstone in central Washington with rivers being shed off of this topographic high as a result of the accretion and therefore deformation of western margin of former Washington. And then secondly, this marine sandstone, the Blue Mountain unit, which is today found, it appears to be underneath Celestia. I guess it is, but it's not a depositional contact, it's a structural contact because we took this turbidity, turb, uh, this sand that was deposited offshore under uh, Pacific Ocean water and then 
shoved underneath Celeste after it got accreted. Sounds more complicated than I think it is, the way that I'm describing it right now. Could have done better with that. But I'm hoping that you can see there's reasons for us to look at sedimentary units. In the next couple of episodes, we will go deeply into the SWAC and the Chumstick Formation, which I was doing in the 351 class. And I mentioned Erin Donaghy a little bit today because she currently is back out in the Olympic Peninsula doing more field work with the Blue Mountain Unit and a few other sedimentary units on the Olympic Peninsula that have, been, um, that have not been studied the way that she and Mike Eddy are studying them. And so I'm confident there'll be new um, messages about some of the Eocene tectonics in the Pacific Northwest coming from sedimentary units, which again, from my background, I've kind of avoided sedimentary units um, for the reasons I discussed. But I now have lots of interest in sedimentary units in Washington because of the big picture implications. Thanks for listening to this episode, dear listener. I hope that you enjoyed it. Coming up next, more sedimentary discussions in central Washington. Thank you. I love you. And goodbye.